Hello, friends. It's a new edition of the Selby is Godcast with TJ Zuppi and Zach Meisel. That's me and him. As we join you in the midst of your quarantine, hope everybody is going all right, going well. Hope the family is all good and everyone's being safe. We appreciate everybody that's listening amidst what might be not a normal sort of daily routine. And I get that. It's reflective in our numbers. As I'm looking at the podcast, Zach, and I can see our streaming numbers. I can see, you know, how, where people are listening from, how long they listen. I get all sorts of data on the podcast. And the one thing that surprised me is that we're, we're getting the same numbers for the most part. But the amount of people listening immediately is almost non-existent. It's taking place <laughs> over long periods of time. And I was trying to think, how could that be possible? Everyone's just sitting at home doing nothing. Wouldn't this be the time to consume podcasts? But then I thought to myself, what, what am I doing with my own podcast? I don't listen to them like I normally do. I'm not sitting in a commute. I'm not driving around like I typically am. I could see a lot of people probably not uh, spending time at their desks with the earbuds in their ears trying to get to five o'clock like they normally do. So it's a different sort of environment to consume your entertainment. So it's a, it's been different to kind of watch how everyone follows and listens to the show because it's not what we typically see as you can kind of expect. Yeah. I'm, I'm so far behind in the podcasts I listen to. And I, it's weird because I feel like I've been listening to them every day. I just, I don't know if people are putting out more. Um, I know, I was a huge fan of the show Scrubs and the two stars from that show, Zach Braff and Donald Faison have created their own podcast and they've unleashed two a week and they're each like an hour and a half long. And there's a lot, there's a lot to consume. Um, and yeah, people aren't in their cars ever. I mean, I think <laughs> we can all, we're all spending like $10 to fill up our tanks and we only need gas once every six months now. Um, but it's it's a strange time and i don't think people just play you know when they're just like around the house i think they're watching netflix and they're watching about the chicago bulls and about joe exotic and they're not necessarily <laughs> just listening because listening requires you to be doing something else while listening yeah, and there's not much else to do it's not uh, quite like the old days when you gather around the family radio and listening listen to story hour no, that doesn't really happen much anymore. But if you do do that with your family in the Selby is Godcast, we're happy to be here to do that for you. <laughs> and if we need to have a, a little fireside chat every once in a while with our, our fans, our listeners, I think it'd be cool. I don't know how it would work, but I'm all for it. We are here for you. Use us. <laughs> Abuse us. Yeah, and even if that means getting a Tinder date, I mean, whatever you got to do, if we got to be your wingmen, then we will absolutely do it. <laughs> That was a great tweet. I appreciated that, that <laughs> listener. Um, yeah, and for those of you that have no idea what we're talking about, and that would be all of you, we got a, a random tweet from somebody that used us as a way to talk to somebody on well, – it was Tinder, right? I don't know what the app looks like. I have no idea. Uh, but I say that proudly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the app looked like, but they – we're talking about podcasts and he says, Oh, well, I was listening to a great Cleveland Indians podcast. And she said, well, what's that? It's the Selby is Godcast. And if you guys get married three years from now, I think we deserve to be at the wedding. Probably even give a toast. I don't know. Maybe do a live version of the show from the wedding. As but you said, we're proves, here for them. I mean, this, and this proves that when you drop 
Selby's Diecast, when you reference it on your dating apps, it seems like it works pretty well. So we'll try it. Before we go any further, we want to give a shout out to Jordan, who became a podcast supporter over at Anchor. If you'd like to do that, you can find our podcast over at Anchor. We tweet the links at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, at Selby is Godcast, and help bring the show to you each and every single week and throughout the month. Whatever you can do to help support the podcast, we do appreciate. And, of course, special shout-out to all the five-star reviewers over at Apple Podcasts, Google, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to listen to the show. Uh, it has been certainly not a typical time for you and I to, to sift through story ideas or even sitting down and trying to hammer out what we're going to talk about on a podcast on a weekly basis. That's why you've heard us draft past teams from the Indians and review old games and probably some room left for us to do that at least one more time before who knows what happens with this sport in the rest of the year. But it has led me down all sorts of different paths where I am now crossing through parts of baseball reference that I haven't thought about in forever or maybe have never even ventured through. And I stumbled on today uh, an old I guess you could say it's an ex-Cleveland Indian that we never officially played for the Cleveland Indians catcher max ramirez you remember that guy i somehow stumbled upon his baseball reference page when i was looking up who the indians traded bob wickman for to the braves in 06 and then i found max ramirez and i thought wait a minute wasn't that guy like a actually pretty decent catching prospect he played briefly in the major leagues for a couple of years for the rangers and then i looked and i remembered wait a minute this is the guy that a year later they traded to the Texas Rangers for Kenny Lofton during that 07 playoff run. And then that just brought me down a whole nother rabbit hole with Kenny Lofton. Do you have any memory of Max Ramirez? (laughs) So I'm, I am admittedly not looking at his baseball reference page right now, but I believe, did he not hit 300 in the minors? I remember him being a, because decently thought of catching process. I remember him. He seemed to me like the not quite to the level, but of the Victor Martinez, Carlos Santana mold, where there was just like a natural hitting ability, and maybe defensively he wasn't quite up to par. I, but uh, this is thirteen years ago now. But I remember thinking he could be the catcher of the future, and. Then I remember him not lasting in the Indians organization for very long. He was a career 289 hitter in the minor leagues with an 834 OPS. Spent parts of 11 seasons in the minor leagues. So that's how his minor league career went. And then uh, he did play 45 games with the Texas Rangers. Put up an OPS plus of 85. 2 17 of the day batting average is just something that is extremely memorable, but it is funny. I, I just, I stumbled across a memory that I had forgotten. I even had, and then it led me to Kenny Lofton's page, which you should probably spend enough time on, uh, on any given day when there's no baseball anyways, because you can always find something interesting, but it's the you... most confusing page on baseball reference though, <laughs> because he was traded so uh, many times. He was... It's such a lengthy page. I mean, he played parts of 17 years in the major leagues, so it makes sense that it would be a lengthy page. But I did not realize. I mean, I knew that he bounced around team after team after team towards the end of his career. And it 
as the story goes, it wasn't because people didn't want him. It's because people actually did. And wasn't he on like a playoff stretch where he was in the playoffs for mm-hmm. some crazy amount of years in a row? Uh, but I, I looked and I, I could not believe. So he played parts of 17 years in the major leagues. He spent parts of 10 years with the Indians. No other team that he played for. Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Texas, L.A., Chicago, New York, Houston, and the other Chicago. At no point did he spend more than one season with any of those teams. So it was the Indians for parts of 10 years and then one year with everybody else. So from 02 to 07, he played for the White Sox, the Giants, the Pirates, the Cubs, the Yankees, the Phillies, the Dodgers, the Rangers, and then back with the Indians. That's nine teams in six years. And he made the playoffs most of those seasons. And he made it in 02, 03, 04, 06, and 07. The only year he didn't was 05, which he spent with Philly. But, yeah, teams wanted him. You know, he was a valuable player. They thought, okay, this guy can hit, he can run, he can play defense. Like, and he's only on a – he's a rent, he was always a rental. So they acquired him, and, and he was always in the playoffs. It's, it's crazy. He made the playoffs – 11 times in those 17 seasons. And that's really hard to do when you, especially when you sign with a team on a one-year deal and you never know what's going to happen. You don't know if the team's going to be good or not. And then you don't know if you're going to get traded or not. It's just, it's wild. And then it became strange to me that no team ever signed him longer. And I know he was getting up there in age, but, at no point did he have a season that indicated he didn't have anything left. Like yeah, his, weird. his numbers were pretty steady for the duration. His last year, I mean, he came to Cleveland and he, he was still hitting pretty well. So it's, it is odd that that's how his career played out. And it just makes for the most difficult baseball reference page to navigate because you're trying to figure out, all right, what did he do in this season? Well, this is only part of a season because he only spent 46 games with this team. And so what did he do for the full year? And what did he do from this year to this? It is just, it's a nightmare. But in that last season, he joins Cleveland for the final 52 games. He hits 283 with a 344 on base percentage. Of course, the slugging percentage, I mean, he wasn't a power hitter even in his heyday outside of, uh, what was the one crazy year he? I guess he had a couple of years where he was up near 14, 15 home runs. Um, but the overall year he had between Texas and Cleveland, he played 136 games. He's a, a pretty much an everyday guy. 559 plate appearances, put up an OPS plus of 105. So 781 was the OPS that year. He stole 23 bases. I know he was 41 years old. So you're looking ahead. Okay, he's going to be 40. Uh, he's 40 this year. He's going to be 41 the next year. But he was still an above average hitter with speed and an ability to probably still play a passable center field, if not a pretty good corner outfield in left field for for that to be his final season is still head scratching. I I know it's something he's talked about before and that he was surprised that that he didn't even have a reunion with Cleveland in 08. And, And I, I said to you in text message, maybe it was because the role that they envisioned him for, it's tough to put, you know, team franchise star with the big personality like Kenny Lofton into uh, just a platoon outfield type that maybe only plays 80 games in a season. Maybe that would have been difficult in their minds. But to, to me, I can't believe that he had a productive year in his final year at the age of 40 years old. And then no team could find a spot for him. You can't find a guy, a spot for a guy that steals 20 bags and gets on base almost 37% of the time. That doesn't make any sense to me. 
Yeah, it's odd. Uh, it's fitting, though, that he, I'm glad he ended his career in Cleveland. Um, it just seemed right. And remember, it was his third tour of Cleveland because he spent the 97 season with the Braves. Um, just do we agree that I mean, we don't need to go into this? I think we've talked about it on this podcast before, but it, what happened to him on the Hall of Fame ballot is a complete travesty. Oh, it's a joke. We, yeah. Um, and I wonder... I wonder if the constant bouncing around in the second half of his career hurt him a little bit. He just like you don't it's hard to remember him. I remember watching the Bartman game randomly right. over the off season. And oh, there's Kenny Lofton. Like he was everywhere, but he was never in the same place. And so it almost like he was easy to forget because he was just like a nomad. Um, yeah, I, I think people that forget that he played as long as he did because of the fact that he was bouncing around for so many different teams right. towards the end of his career. It's it's just yeah. wild to me. But, I mean, just if you can dream up a center fielder's career and you say, okay, well, this guy is going to hit for average for two decades. He's going to reach base at a really healthy clip for two decades. It's not going to hit for much power, but he's going to steal bases like crazy for the first half of his career. And then the second half of his career will give you 20 to 30 stolen bases a season. Um, and he, like he, he still hit a bunch of doubles as his career went on. I mean, he, he was like, and he played a suitable center field. And also the dude never struck out like his, his walks and strikeouts for his career are pretty close to even. I mean, that is, that is like what you would dream for a center fielder. I mean, obviously you could dream of Mike Trout and, but that's not realistic, but like, I just remember Kenny Lofton being the prototypical, like what you want in a center fielder when I was growing up. And like, if, if you were building, you know, if you're doing a fantasy draft on your video game, like he'd be one of the first guys you'd think of to be your center fielder because he just hit so many different um, checkpoints on, on what you're looking for in a player. I know you talked about the 94 season a couple of podcasts ago, how much different things would have perhaps been for his career if he would have gotten more MVP recognition. I mean, for what it's worth, he finished fourth that year, the the season that didn't really get to get finished. It would, how much different or how differently would we view that year through the prism of the type of tools that we have to evaluate players now? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, even so, he had a 948 OPS, stole 60 bases in just 112 games in 94. He's an all-star. He's a gold glover for whatever those things are worth. He hit double-digit home runs. He had 32 doubles that year. He scored, or he had 162 hits to lead Major League Baseball. So, I mean, it's like he got it done in, in whatever way you want to get it done on top of being a star defensive center fielder that it, it wasn't like you've seen guys that that aren't necessarily exciting, but through the numbers you look at it and you say it's a good defensive player. And then you have guys like Kenny Lofton that were graded as a good defensive player, but also was out there making spectacular plays and even had the, the flair for the dramatic with him constantly knocking his hat off as he made plays to make it look <laughs> like he ran so fast that his hat flew off. He had the star power. He had the personality. I don't get it. I know, I know where he ended up getting left off the ballot was 
in some way uh, a response to just who else was on the ballot and how convoluted and confusing Hall of Fame balloting has gotten throughout the mm-hmm. the backlog of guys that have been out there. But yeah, even if you don't think that he was a Hall of Fame player, he's certainly close enough on the fringe that he sh- this there should have been a lengthy conversation about his worth. Yeah, if he would have survived that first year instead of being dropped off completely, we're probably having similar conversations to the ones we had about Tim Raines because their numbers were so similar. Um, and, you know, it took Raines until his last year on the ballot, I think, to, for him to get in. And we have come such a long way, I think, over the last eight to ten years in how we view Hall of Fame candidates and what we – Necessarily the, the criteria we use, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think you would have been having similar conversations about Loftonsworth. Now, that 94 season, I had not given this much thought until Dan O'Dowd mentioned the idea that, you know, if he maybe, maybe somehow he wins the MVP, that season is it's a complete season. And then, yeah, then I think he probably doesn't drop off the ballot his first time. And then, then maybe we are having those conversations now, or maybe he's already in. Uh, but it's so interesting to me because in 94, the, you know, it was what was valued was power and home runs and batting average. And like Frank Thomas's numbers were insane. His OPS was over 1,200. So I don't know if Lofton could have, if there's anything he could do to top that, even though he did uh, accumulate more war over, you know, the season that was. But you had Frank Thomas, Griffey, and Albert Bell, whose numbers were just <laughs> off the charts. But I do wonder, let's say Lofton plays 160 games. If he's got 200-plus hits and is the only one, like he, he, was, he had 105 runs scored in 112 games. That doesn't matter to me, but that mattered to people back then. If that number is 150, which it was on pace to be, like, right. that's hard to ignore. He he could have had 50 doubles. He could have had like 90 stolen bases. I mean, these are numbers that are pretty ridiculous. And maybe if Frank Thomas, Griffey, and and Albert Bell, if it was tough to pick between the three of them because they all hit for a ton of power and and average and stuff, maybe you'd think about Lofton a little longer because he did things differently and was still able to be right there in that conversation with those guys. And to finish fourth. In that era, I think it shows at least people were thinking about him. So it wasn't like he was an afterthought at all. So I looked up over at Baseball Reference. You've got the war among center fielders in their careers. And I know it's not the end-all be-all, but it is something that helps us compare across generations and look at the totality of a guy's worth. Kenny Lofton finished with, according to Baseball Reference, 68.4 wins above replacement in his career. That is right between Carlos Beltran, who's at 70.1, and Andrew Jones at 62.7. Now, everyone has recently have they've begun to make a pretty strong case for for Andrew Jones in the Hall of Fame. And Kenny Lofton was was higher in wins above replacement. Carlos Beltran, many people have said that he's a guy that's going to be easily in when it comes time for it. If you look at the average of the 19 Hall of Famers at that position, it's 71.3. So he is just below what the average Hall of Famers would be. And you've got um, 
you know, Andre Dawson in there, who Lofton best, uh, Richie Ashburn, Billy Hamilton, uh, Kirby Puckett, they list, list the center field. Larry Doby for for reasons other than just his career, too. But, I mean, you're you're talking about a guy that is right there with an, with a lot of other center fielders that are already in the Hall of Fame. I mean, smack dab right in the middle. The only guys that, that aren't in right now uh, that are right by him, we've got Trout, who's passed up everybody, who's fifth right now, um, and then Beltron, and then Andrew Jones, and then you got to go drop all the way down to Jim Edmonds at 15th at 60.4 wins above replacement. I mean, Lofton's right in the middle of a, a lot of guys that are Hall of Famers, right below the average at the position. Even, like I said, even if you don't think that he was a Hall of Famer, if you use some sort of reasoning that when I saw him, he didn't look like a Hall of Famer or something stupid like that, he was close enough that uh, we should have had a really lengthy discussion about yeah. this. Yeah, think about all the players he was traded for. I mean, he was traded for David Justice plus Marquise Grissom. Like that's that's a lot. Yeah, but the Braves got Alan Embry, um, so you need to, I mean, you need to put that for in. There. Eddie Tobinsey, as we know. So that that was quite a leap. That you know the Ast- yeah, the Ramos Astros are Ramirez. like, eh, we really we, we want a catcher. So let's let's just give him this Lofton kid, and then six years later, he's traded for one of the better hitters, <laughs> pretty solid center fielder, and Grissom. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, it's weird to think about the lineups from the nineties and obviously Tommy's in the hall of fame and like, it's just a lot of like borderline guys. Like if Albert Bell played longer and didn't have degenerative hip issues, he's a hall of famer. If Manny Ramirez doesn't get popped twice, He's a Hall of Famer. If, you know, Omar Vizquel could potentially be a Hall of Famer. Eddie Murray is a Hall of Like, it's, it's pretty wild because even though you knew how talented that lineup was in the 90s, you certainly didn't look at it from the lens of, man, this lineup is just every single person in here has some Hall of Fame consideration in their future. It's just, it's so weird <laughs> to think that. It's, and, and especially Lofton because he wasn't one of the big boppers in the middle you don't really think of him necessarily from that perspective when he's during the career. But then you look back and you look at all he accomplished and it's like, well, that was pretty damn good. Yeah. And again, it wasn't like he, he was an afterthought at the time either. I, I remember hearing people say that he was the most exciting player in baseball at the time. Um, so clearly he had, he had the, the profile and the personality to go along with just the, the type of player that he was that I think people at the time realized that he was a really good player. Maybe it's, as you said, it is just the bouncing around over the final several years of his career that uh, maybe takes him off the rate or took him off the radar for some people. Um, or maybe it was the fact that Joel Skinner stopped him at third and he never got a chance to mm-hmm. score in the, the ALCS game seven. Maybe that was it too. That's his last like moment well, of I... his career too. <laughs> That's a lasting memory for a lot of people. Uh, but you spent a lot of time over the past several months examining the, the 95 lineup. And I'd be remiss if I didn't give you some props for your new book. Now, I, I, I'm just going off of what everyone else says because I haven't got a chance to actually read it or do anything with it. But everyone else seems to think it's great. So good job, man. 
Thanks. And, uh, you know, it's funny we're talking about Lofton because he might have been the person I bugged the most during the process. And yet he (laughs) was so open to talking about everything with that team. And I think it helps. I mean, it's the 25-year anniversary. Um, It was, you know, if, if I wonder if they'd said there will be no baseball in 2020, like, Sports Time Ohio should just air every game from that season every night as if it's live. Oh, I bet they I bet they would if they if they had it. If how how much baseball and this is something else we're realizing now as you go back through the archives, how much baseball is lost on on tapes that got taped over. And I'm not talking about like at <laughs> grandma's house. I'm talking about at at the television station. How many tapes of iconic things have been taped over and are gone forever that we can never go back and watch. I would love to sit down and watch all of those games from 1995. It would be fantastic. But it was just such, it's the perfect season to, to like use as a substitute. I've said this a lot, um, probably on this podcast and other radio interviews and whatnot, but like the thing that I'm missing the most, and I think we're all going to be missing in another month or two if you know if we're still in this is like baseball's the heartbeat of the summer every night no matter what you have going on in your life you know there's a game and you know there's a result and you know there's something that's going to make you if you're a fan feel happy or sad until the next game um and to not have that i, I mean i feel kind of like i'm just like a chicken with its head cut off or I'm just like wandering through the springtime, not really sure what my purpose is. And if there was ever, you, you can't replace it. I mean, I think everybody who has tried to do a simulation or play a video game and then write about it and try to convince fans that it's interesting has found out it's not. And I think if you're going to try a substitute, the 95 season would be the closest thing to something that would work Um, because it was pretty incredible how dominant they were, how cocky they were and how they harnessed that arrogance into just destroying their opposition. And on the rare night when they fell behind and somehow needed a spark, they always had it. It's just, it was remarkable with all the come from behind wins you know, the pitching staff doesn't get nearly the attention or credit it deserves. Um, but it was, it, it, I think there's something to be said about when you're at the beginning. We deal with this. Here's your HBD reference of the podcast. We deal with this in HBD where the fun part of the game or even in a, in a video game, the fun part is building the team and getting to that point where, okay, take off the training wheels. Like we're going to try to win now. And it's going to be really fun to watch this all come together. That's the most fun part of any video game, HBD, whatever you're doing virtually. Um, And there's a little bit of that in real life, too, where they got a taste of it in 94 before the strike hit. They knew they had something. They knew they could be pretty good. And then 95, it was like, okay, take what we learned last year and let's put all this talent to use. And there's no better example of it than when they clinch on September 8th. And yet after that, nobody wants out of the lineup. They all want to play the last three weeks, even though they were far and away the best team in the league and they had the best record wrapped up. Um, 
but it's it's that beginning part where it's it's almost like a honeymoon phase. And for fans, it's like that too because they hadn't had any postseason letdowns yet. So you're living and dying with every pitch during the regular season because this is fun and this is new. And for 40 years, the team had been terrible. And, you know, 95, they lose and it's, you know, they still throw a parade downtown because it was new and it was fun. And it, it just, it felt like the first year of what would be many. And, you know, it's kind of similar to 2016 in that regard where there was nothing to be mad at yet. There was no sense of urgency yet. Um, and so, and you were just getting to learn who these people were on the field. Like that honeymoon phase is, that's the best. And so that summer, like, I mean, it, it was like a love story. And so if you, if they, they should re-air that. I don't need to see, you know, we've, we've talked about all the classic games on here and they're exciting, but like, it would be really cool if they just did every night. Here's if they played on this night in 95, here's the game. Well, the only problem with going back and airing games that are that are the classic games, and this is one thing we we especially try to do with that game three ALCS um, ninety seven matchup with the Indians and Orioles. Everyone knew what the conclusion was, but I think there was so much that got lost in that game that it was going to be fun to go back and and watch it and then recap it with everybody because despite knowing that Viscal was going to miss it and Grissom was going to score and that was going to be it for that game, getting to that point and setting it up was fun because you yeah, had, I mean, we had a so two hour much. podcast the about problem a two with... to one game. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where nothing happened in the middle innings. Um, and there was some sense of that too, with the comeback game, because a lot had to happen to get them back to where Viscal hits the triple. And it was fun to be able to kind of lay the breadcrumbs as you go. But when you're talking about classic games, you still always know what happens in the end. You know the ending. If you were able to go back and just air the 95 games, outside of some some memorable games like the Eckersley walk-off where he mm-hmm. mouths the wow after Ramirez clobbers it over the bleachers, um, the Albert Buck Grand Slam game against Lee Smith to walk off the Angels, um, there were certain games that are very memorable when they jump out to an early eight, nothing lead. I think Sereno hits a grand slam hitting eighth, <laughs> by the way, uh, before the Indians even make an out. There are certain games that I remember from that season, but if you just aired a, a random game from June 6th, I don't know what the hell happens. I would right. be locked in like it's brand new. You know, it's, it's, it's new to me. I don't remember what happens in this game. So that would be one very cool thing that unfortunately I don't think we could do. I don't think the, that footage exists yeah, and you'd get the local broadcast too so you get the the local flavor of how enjoyable that was whereas you know when we went back and listened to the broadcast of the mariners comeback a lot of the talk was about how woeful the indians pitching had been and you know how amazing the mariners had been and it wasn't like like sometimes it's nice to have to hear from the people who have watched this team every day for months or years um, and I think that would be cool. And, and you get more maybe insight into some of the players who don't always get a ton of camera time. I mean, people, people know nothing about like Wayne Kirby and Alvaro Espinosa, and yet ask anybody on that 95 team and they'll reference those two guys as the ones who kept everybody in line. Um, and that's maybe, maybe that's sort of the thing that you could get from a local broadcast that you wouldn't get from a national one or from a game that you've watched a million times. Um, but yeah, it's 
the, the, the 95 team, I mean, first of all, they were just so dominant. And, you know, who knows how they would be revered in baseball history if, if they wouldn't have lost to the Braves. But the fact that it was the first team to, I mean, that was just everybody fell in love with that team. And that's why, I mean, ask anybody what their favorite Indians team was and the majority are going to say 95. Yeah, I would, I would think so. Um, there was just a certain magic to that season, the, the comebacks and the, the, the fact that you really never felt like you could turn the game off because they believed they could come back and they certainly did it many times in unbelievable fashion. The fact that I can still reference those Eckersley games or the Lee Smith walk off by Bell with the Grand Slam, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, is a testament to to those games and also the Cleveland Rocks VHS that probably you and I wore <laughs> out as, as youth. So, I mean, just being able to find one of those tapes and popping that in every now and again, just just air that on a nightly basis. If I can just watch, what was it, Sereno and Wayne Kirby visit the Rock and Roll Hall <laughs> of Fame? If I could just watch that every single night, that would be terrific. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's like when else – I mean, the Indians always have characters, and they have 120 years of history. But, like, you think about the personalities that that – that the city just embraced. And, like, it was so easy to become a fan of Bayerga or Vizquel or Manny Ramirez. Obviously, Albert Bell. Like, it, it's, it's crazy, but it, it's – they were the perfect elixir. They were the perfect reward for 40 years of misery. Um, and it had certainly helped that you had this brand new, beautiful, colorful ballpark to put them in. It was, it was just like, it was almost like a new franchise. I mean, it was, it was completely different than what fans have been accustomed to for so long. And that's why it has the staying power. It does. I mean, imagine if, if they, if they won the world series, I mean, I think people would talk about them like, one of the handful of the best teams in baseball history, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, part of it warranted because of the talent, because of the way they produced that year, but also just because of the personality that, ac- that accompanied it would have made it easy to make some of those connections. So in my uh, rabbit hole viewing of baseball reference, I was just curious. So I did a, a search on walk-off home runs here in recent years, dating back to 95 for the Indians. And what I really was curious to find is what could we, we had talked about the Vizquel triple and, you know, if, if that had been uh, a walk-off grand slam, the, that it would have added uh, a shit ton of win probability to his season total. We joked that uh, that would have been basically his entire season. <laughs> so I had looked up, what, which home runs were the least probable in that situation? Essentially, which one had the highest win probability added on the walk-off home run? Because I was curious. If it, is it the ones that we can recall uh, almost immediately, or are these going to be ones that are random? Because you're thinking about what's the situation. You have to be down in the game. It has to be the ninth inning, and you probably are in a situation where it's two outs, maybe a runner on first is, is the – best way that you could try to win a game like that where it just doesn't seem probable that you're going to win and I found three of the top ones since 95 the third one is the third one from the top is easy it's Jason Giambi's walk-off home run in 2013 
So th- that one passes the smell test. Where it's like, oh, yeah, that should be high on the win probability probability meter. But we had mentioned 1994. Second on that list was a game that took place June 4th, 1995, a game between the Blue Jays and the Indians. So I'm going to give you uh, the lineups from these from this game. For the Blue Jays, it was Devon White in center field, Alex Gonzalez at shortstop, Paul Molitor at DH, Joe Carter in left field, John Olerud at first base, Roberto Alomar at second base. Look how far down he's hitting. What the hell? Sean Green in right field hitting seventh. Ed Sprague, who has gotten a lot of play on this podcast, playing third base, hitting eighth. Lance Parrish hitting ninth. For the Indians, it was Lofton, Vizquel, Bayerga, Bell, Murray, Tommy, Sereno, Eddie Tucker. Who? Eddie Tucker was hitting ninth that day with Wayne Kirby in right field. This game came down. I spent a lot of time on this box score when writing my book. And these two lineups are both loaded. Like that Blue Jays lineup is really good. And both (laughs) horribly assembled. Like they're mirror images of each other. Alex Gonzalez hitting. You had to have your center fielder hit leadoff and your shortstop hit second. Doesn't matter who they are. Um, the fact that Roberto Al, and I think I even referenced this, um, cause the first inning played out, I don't know if you, were you going to mention this, how the first inning played out for the Blue Jays? Well, I was going to mention just who started these games. It was David Cohn, the reigning Cy Young for the Blue Jays and, and Jason Grimsley for the Indians who didn't even make the it out of the first Mission inning. reigning impossible champion. Um, okay, so Grimsley didn't escape the first inning, but the Blue Jays tried to allow him to. Because Grimsley walked the bases loaded to start it, walked the first three guys. Joe Carter, uh, two-run single. John Olerud, RBI single. So you've already scored three runs. There's nobody out. There's two runners on base. Roberto Alomar, who should be hitting first or second, is hitting sixth. And he sacrificed bunted. Roberto freaking Alomar. <laughs> In a game where you're up 3 nothing in the first... What are you playing for one run for? Against the 95 Against Indians, a guy no who had the first five batters had walked three and given up two singles. <laughs> and so to make it even better, and the chef's kiss here, he sack bunts, and then Sean Green hits a three-run homer. <laughs> See, it works! So yeah, and then Grimsley walked Ed Sprague, and that was it. So he, mm. got, he recorded one out, and it was the Robbie Alomar... Sacrifice bunt and gave up what seven runs, six uh, runs. Yeah, he ended up giving up seven uh, because then Chad OJ came in. He didn't give up uh, the the final run that belonged to Grimsley, but Chad Chad OJ came in and gave them a chance to win. I'm not sitting here going through every part of this game, but I can tell you that it ended on a Paul Sorrento walk off home run, which uh, scored Jim Tomey. And that, according to baseball reference on the, the search I did over there, added uh, a win probability of 0.898, <laughs> which is pretty much 90%. You're, 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 you're losing. You have a 10% chance to win. Paul Sorrento comes up, homers with Jim Tomey on base, and that gives you the win. Number one well, on I did this want list to say that, came that from – That game – Oh, go ahead. Um, they were – that moved them to 24 and 10, and that – a lot of people will say that basically was the difference between, oh, cool, like we're off to a hot start, like let's keep it going, and holy shit, we're really, really good. Um, you're, you're down eight <laughs> runs, and they had the reigning Cy Young winner on the mound, and they were, like, the Blue Jays had a good lineup. Um, so that was 
there was no looking back after that. And I think they won a bunch of games in a row, and it was, yeah. I still can't get past Eddie Tucker catching. I remember Tony Pena playing a lot of that season because Sandy Alomar was hurt. Eddie Tucker. And what, well, what, what uh, times was he giving Jason Grimsley in the first inning? <laughs> right down the fucking middle. All right. Um, like I, I mentioned, the number one on this list, win probability added, walk-off home run. Who could forget May 14th, 2002, a matchup between the Indians and Orioles. The Orioles ran out of starting lineup. They must have missed the memo that you got to get the shortstop up in the top of the order, but they certainly knew they had to get the speedy outfielders up top. Melvin Mora <laughs> in left field, Chris Singleton in center field, Jeff Conine at first base, Jay Gibbons wow. in right field, Tony Batista at third base, Marty Cordova DHing, Mike Bordick at short, Geronimo Gill catching, and Jerry Hairston at second base. For the Indians, Omar Vizquel leading off with a 419 on base percentage at this point in the season. And a nine seventy four. That was the year OPS. where he was. He hit a bunch of home runs, right? Like fourteen of them. Yeah, I think that was the. I know his ninety nine season was incredible, but I think this one was. Hold on, stand by. Let me look up the Omar Vizquel two thousand two season. Um, yeah, he had fourteen home runs, a one hundred four OPS plus. It was an above average bat was the one year where you could probably get away with putting him up in the top of the lineup, although probably not. Ricky Gutierrez was Can I second, have a quick aside base. on Ricky Gutierrez? <laughs> you, okay, so I've been writing a lot of trade trees and who turns into who turns into who. Um, and this week is, is the famous Bartolo Colon deal, of course, which um, can be connected to even the Framil Reyes trade from last summer. But I somehow stumbled upon some Indians fans email chain from 2002, the days after they traded Bartolo Colon. I don't know why this was publicly accessible. Um, I don't think I will use it in writing because it seems weird. Um, but I did want but, but on a podcast, sure. Well, no, I, and the you bus. know what? It, it was insightful. It was cool to learn what passionate fans were thinking immediately after a huge trade that signaled, I mean, Mark Shapiro said it in the days after he's like, this means we're rebuilding and we're not going to try to win now. But the funniest part of this email chain. Well, hold on. Can we, let's finish. This well, I just wanted to mention we'll to... anytime they mentioned Ricky okay. Gutierrez, they called him Rick E four. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was beautiful. They did not care for his defense at second base. <sighs> Uh, who was he was a shortstop, right? Um, Matt Lawton was hitting third in right field. Jim Tomey at first base. You had to bury him as far <laughs> as you could down in the lineup. He was hitting fourth. Ellis Burks DHing, hitting fifth. Russell Brannion at third base. Oh. Brady Anderson in left field, uh, who was hitting 171 at this point, goes 0 for 4 in this game. Anar Diaz catching, and our boy Holbert Cabrera, Holbert hitting ninth. And uh, owning an 094 just, batting average. It what was a bizarre world where Marty Cordova is on the Orioles and Brady Anderson is on the Indians. Yeah, there you go. Uh, game started by Scott Erickson. Remember when Dan Scott Erickson Baez was with the Indians? For the Indians. Right? No. Wasn't he? I don't know. Scott Ellerton. It's, yeah. 
I don't think Erickson ever Minnesota and Baltimore is all I can think of. Uh, Mets, Texas, Dodgers, New York. Um, so Danny Baez started for the Indians, went six innings, gave up four runs, uh, did walk five guys in this game, paved the way for Ricardo Rincon, David Risky, and Paul Shuey to pitch later in this game. But the Indians were trailing in the bottom of the ninth going in. It was a 5-2 game entering the bottom of the ninth. And the Indians were facing Jorge Julio of the Orioles with That's seven, eight, nine Indian, hitting. Right? The, the Jorge Julio, yes. was he an Indian? God, quit throwing me off. I don't think that was the case. Hold on. Let me, before I look, Brady Anderson strikes out looking, Anar Diaz ground out the first. So it, you already have two outs in the inning. You're down by three runs. You think this game is already over. With the nine-hitter up, Holbert Cabrera, who's having a terrible beginning of the season, he reaches on a throwing error by the third baseman. So Cal Ripken ain't walking through that door. It should have been it. <laughs> so you've now got a runner at first. That brings up Omar Vizquel, who doubles to right field, and Cabrera scores. That's The rest of this inning is going to be all unearned runs because the inning should be over. Ricky Gutierrez lines a single to right field. Vizquel scores. Now the Indians are only down one in this game. Here comes John McDonald, a pinch run for Ricky Gutierrez. Uh, not known as E4, clearly, because he actually could play good defense. Here comes Matt Lawton, who hits a fly ball to deep right field. It is gone, ladies and gentlemen. A walk-off home run for Matt Lawton, scoring John McDonald. And the Indians win, scoring four runs in the ninth inning. And that, my friends, according to win probability added, is the highest WPA for any walk-off home run over the past 25 years for the Indians. It added .963. So it was a 96% swing in the Indians' direction. They were almost certainly going to lose that game until Matt Lawton connected. And they shouldn't even have been in, in that position. I just needed a... An opportunity well, Jorge Julio pitched line. for the Indians in 2008. We did him as a random Indian, I think, over the winter, yeah. Did we? I don't remember so this shit. I, this on, is no. uh, me assuming, but Matt Lawton hitting that home run paved the way for two months later, exactly two months, Bill Selby doing a similar feat against Mariano Rivera because when Matt Lawton hit that home run and he turned the tables – to that degree, 96% or whatever you said, I think that inspired the Indians. And they believed, no matter how much we're down in the ninth inning, we can do this. <laughs> you know, and of course, win probability added is not taking into account the pitcher that you're facing, the team that you're facing. It's all going to be context neutral to that sort of thing. So anyone screaming, Bill Selby hit the least probable home run of all time. Well, you're probably right. Yeah, the difference with Selby, though. <laughs> but is... not according to... And Selby, WPA. they were only down one when he came to bat. Now... Well, I mean, that was the case with in this situation, too. But they also had the bases loaded, right. so you had more of an opportunity to And they were also down 7 nothing in that game to the Yankees. And they were down 7-4 to four entering the ninth against Mariano Rivera and scored six runs against him. So come on, you can take your Matt Lawton home run and I'll take my boy Selby. I didn't say it. It's the, the freaking podcast is named after Fine. this shit. All right. The Lawton um, is Godcast. I need to hear before, before we end, 
this was an off the whole episode was in random ex Cleveland inning of the day. So really no need for that at this point, but I need to know what Indian fan 24, 16 thought about that Bartolo <laughs> Cologne trade. So they, it was interesting because I, I couldn't keep track of how many people were involved in this. Cause it seemed like I, the usernames were funny. And like, I didn't know if some were the same people or what, um, you know, the initial reaction is anger and rage, and someone called him Trader Shapiro, like uh, Frank Lane, who made a new trade every hour when he was the Indians' GM in, what, the 50s and 60s, and he earned the nickname Frank Trader Lane, so they were calling him Trader Shapiro. Someone said Trader Shapiro is ruining the Indians. Shapiro talked about how he wanted, like, a Joe Carter-type deal, where you trade a franchise cornerstone and you get a bunch of really talented minor leaguers who can help you in a couple of years as the Indians did when they traded Joe Carter for Carlos Bayerga, Sandy Almar and Chris James. Um, but so one of the first reactions was, well, this is no way, this is in no way a Joe Carter deal. Um, they were trying to figure out if yeah. because it was better. Well, so Brandon Phillips was, the Expo's top prospect. He was the number 20 prospect in baseball, according to Baseball America. He was a shortstop at the time. There were questions on whether he'd stick at shortstop, but like far and away, it was like, okay, this dude's going to be a star. Great acquisition there. Cliff Lee, I think people thought had potential if he could throw strikes. Um, so they liked that. No one knew what to make of Grady Sizemore. He had zero home runs at the time of the trade, and it was late June. He was really young. I think he was 20. There was a lot of talk about how the Expos paid a high price for him because he was considering going to play football and baseball at the University of Washington. So, wasn't he? Wasn't he like at high? Yeah, at the time and, when and they it was like, I... like you see the tools, but you didn't see the numbers yet. So no one. So the people in the email chain are trying to figure out whether or not he was just a throw-in, which is is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> and then someone else said. Quote, I watch them and I try to see what the Indians will be in 2004. I see a very solid pitching staff with, uh, and then I see Phillips, who I think, I mean, Brandon Phillips, Alex Escobar, who sadly did not make it, um, Ben Broussard, and some free agents on the corners. This is how you build a team. And it's like, well, not exactly, but you're on the right track. Um, I think he was, I think he referenced, Victor Martinez and Smith. Would that have been Corey Smith? See, like a Sounds third right. baseman, right? Who was a high pick and then just never made it. Yeah, I think so. So it, it's it's interesting. And, and it, you know, that was Shapiro's first move as GM was the Robbie Almar trade, which he admitted he kind of flubbed because it was a half measure where they acquired Lawton. And they signed Ricky Gutierrez, but, you know, they also tried to get prospects. And he, he was wondering if, I know he, years later, he thought, you know, if I would have done it right, we probably would have ended up with Alex Escobar and David Wright um, from the Mets. So instead, they were trying to contend and rebuild, and it was just a mess. And so that's the first move. Obviously, Robbie Almar never did much anywhere else, but they didn't really get a ton for him since Escobar busted his knee. And then his next move is the Bartolo Colon trade. So I think fans are like, what is going on here? And, and it, 
blindsided everybody. The team didn't know that something like that was going to happen. You know, there were there were rumors and, you know, a feeling that they were going to have to start focusing on the farm system and stuff. But it was the first big move that showed they were fully committing to a rebuild. And it was a shock to everybody's system. So, you know, I think some a lot of fans were probably pretty frustrated with it. And, and when you're a casual observer, you don't, especially back then before everybody was on the internet and knew everything about every prospect. It's, it's hard to get excited about something when it's, it's kind of blind to you and you don't know anything about these three 20 year olds you acquired. Corey Smith, first round pick in yeah. 2000, 26 pick overall uh, was it? Yeah. You're, you're third baseman. He was drafted as a shortstop, but uh, clearly did not uh, have the impact that our, our fan on the internet on the interwebs thought he would. And, and it's so interesting with the, the Cologne trade too, is it happens because of such mm-hmm. a unique situation in Montreal. It doesn't happen. Otherwise I, I think at the time I'm trying to remember what the thought process was. Well, I can tell you, I mean, it was the, the expos, there was the threat of contraction the year before. Well, and sure. I, I, I know what their motivations were. I'm trying to think of what the, the reaction around baseball was at the time, because I, my thought was, I, th- I thought a lot of people thought the Indians did well. In that yeah. And remember the Indians, they had two people in their front office who had just come over from the Expos. So the Indians knew their farm system better than any other team did. And so that, that helped them get the guys they thought had a lot of potential. Um, I, I think the thing around the league, because the league owned the Expos, so they were not allowed to add a ton of payroll. How did that not get well, vetoed? Because the, so the Expos included Lee Stevens to try to balance the salary a little bit. The Indians included like almost a million dollars. And I, the Expos were going for it. I mean, it, it's they had a pretty good team. I don't know why they weren't better. They didn't make the playoffs. But, like, they had Bartolo Colon and Javi Vasquez was at the peak of his powers back then. And, you know, they had Vlad and Jose Vidro. And um, and from the Expos' point of view, it, the, the thing that I think was frustrating to people was that they knew they weren't going to be able to keep Bartolo Colon because they couldn't add to the payroll because the league owned the team. So it was like you did give up quite a bit for a rental, but they were going to do that. Like there were rumors that they were in on Jeff Weaver from the Tigers. and uh. Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't even know if they were going to exist beyond the end of that year. So that's why they, they went all in, in that particular time. And the Indians took advantage of that. There's no doubt about it. Um, the craziest thing about it, Zach, is that Bartolo Colon outpitched them all. Insane. He, he was in the league longer than everybody. It's nuts. Uh, he's, I, I don't put it past them to continue pitching. Well, if, if you would have told me, hey, Brandon Phillips is going to play for like 15 years in the majors and be a multiple-time, I think it was a multiple-time all-star, like Indians fans would have been like, awesome. And then, and then, <laughs> then you would have said, well, but he's only going to play in Cleveland for like four <laughs> years. You had been like, okay, so I guess they'll get him early in his career. And then like when he gets a little expensive, trade him for some top prospects. Yeah. Exactly. But <laughs> even though all they got for him was Jeff Stevens, um, 
they were able to turn Jeff Stevens into Mark DeRosa, who they turned into Chris Perez. So he got something much later. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, well, imagine popping into that wherever you found that from at the time. Imagine being able to pop in there now and say, relax, guys. The Indians got a future Cy Young Award winner who will go on to be one of the best pitchers in baseball, a multiple-time uh, all-star at second base, and at one point will look like potentially a <laughs> Hall of Fame center fielder in this trade. <laughs> they all said, Man, screw you with your optimistic outlook. Get the yeah, hell and it's, it's always funny because when you see a trade like that, people are always like, Lee Stevens, what? <laughs> we already have, <laughs> what does this mean for, we have Tommy at DH and Ben Broussard, like, why do we need Lee Stevens? And obviously that was, you know, he was not an important piece of that trade. <laughs> you can subscribe to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Spotify, and, of course, if you want to help support the podcast over at Anchor, we do appreciate those of you that can. Any final words? Yeah, week? Brandon Phillips. Other than buy Four my seasons book. In, in Cleveland or parts of them. Brandon Phillips hit 206 with a 246 on base and a 310 slugging percentage. How does that happen? I don't know. No. Eric Wedge wanted yeah. the hell out of here. So thank you all for listening happened. and continuing to support the podcast. It means a lot because I know everyone is dealing with just absurdity at the moment. So thank you for continuing to let us occupy your brain space. And seriously, and I mean it when I say this, go buy Zach's book. Selvius Godcast featuring Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi is presented by our supporters at Anchor. To help support the podcast, visit anchor.fm slash Godcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, be sure to leave us a five-star review. And if you have suggestions, drop us a DM on Twitter at Godcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>